So, Father God, would you speak a word to us today? We need to be encouraged from you. We don't ultimately need to hear the thoughts from a human being. We need a word from a timeless, eternal God. So would you come by our address? God, we receive what you have to say to us today. It's a privilege, Lord God, that you would use me as a postman of sorts to deliver the good news of your word. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, let's uh, continue on in our study of the book of Joshua. Meet me in Joshua chapter 10. Some of you all may be wondering, when are we going to get finished? Um, uh, what I noted at the start of the series is uh, really Joshua chapters 12 to about 21, 22. Um, we're going to fly over those because it is just uh, we see God um, divvying out the land to specific tribes. So next week, we're going to actually be in Joshua chapter 23, the following week, Joshua chapter 24. And then we will uh, have some specific Christmas-themed messages. Uh, let me just say this. Um, it's, it's, it's my absolute joy and privilege um, to, uh, to, to pastor you and to, um, to walk with you. Uh, one of the gut-wrenching things about what I do is to walk with so many of you who have just experienced trying times and, um, and difficulties, especially those who have um, lost uh, significant loved ones. Think of Skye. We did her her mother's funeral um, some months back, and um, and uh, another man just came to me and just was reminding me about his uh, his situation. And so this grief share thing, the holidays can just be really tough. Some of you will just sit at Thanksgiving tables, and it'll just be hard for you to make it through the meal because you're going to look at a seat where your mom used to sit, your spouse used to sit. Um, and I just want you to know we're here as a community to love on you, to equip you, and how to really navigate that. So we've talked about grief share. Uh, please, if, if you're just needing some help and how to process this, um, you can sign up for it right here in the lobby um, right after service. And please be a part of that. Get equipped um, for how to just navigate these tough times. Also want to remind us. Uh, before we get uh, into the word that if you can't make it to somebody's Bible teaching church on a Sunday, maybe you're out of town for business, whatever, uh, you can always stream us on the internet live, or you can go to our Facebook page and live stream us there as well. But, but that's, um, that's not to replace church. All right. That's if you're just like, I just can't get to someone's church that actually teaches a word. So um, we are, we're here to provide that for you. Um, meet me in Joshua chapter 10. My aim was to preach the whole passage, uh, the whole chapter, but uh, there's just so much in the opening 14 verses. We're just going to hang out there. In fact, the rest of Joshua chapter 10 really unpacks that. So let me just read the first 14 verses uh, and then unpack a few thoughts and we can continue on. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel, 
and were among them, pay attention to verse 2, he feared, he feared, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. Now, this is interesting. I, I don't have time to really unpack this, but, but when, when we don't give our fears to God and when we let fear just fester in our hearts, it now leads us to control. See? Um, and instead of relinquishing control of that fear and submitting it to God, we now take control. And we can lash out into some ungodly ways. And I see this all the time. And it wreaks havoc on relationships. Uh, I see this a lot of times with parents uh, whose kids are getting older in those adolescent teenage years. uh, And they're starting to realize how how little control they actually have. Uh, Newsflash, you ain't had much control to begin with. Um, And then you try to clamp down because of your fear. And that's just not a good thing. It pushes them away, maybe pushes them into rebellion. Uh, Some, as young adults, turn their back on the church. Uh, um, Relationships with parents are messed up. Relationships with in-laws are messed up. See in-laws, see parents try to control grown kids in passive-aggressive ways. What you mean? You ain't coming home for Thanksgiving. We always do Thanksgiving every year together. Just really passive-aggressive. And like when you hear an in-law or a parent just kind of go passive-aggressive on you, trying to guilt you into coming home for Thanksgiving, never are you like, yeah, yeah, you know what? I really want to hang out with you now. So fear-fed control doesn't accomplish its objective. It pushes people away. So here we see this coalition is formed out of fear, and now they're trying to control something, and it's not going to end good for them. Verse 5, then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, I love this, we'll unpack this. Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, do not fear them, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel and struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Akalah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, you Californians may not know what a hailstone is, so let me tell you what. Okay, y'all got it. Um, Verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon. This is his prayer. And moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. 
There has been no day like it before or since. Actually, a professor at Harvard um, has actually researched this, and he says, I don't know how he came to this conclusion, but just scientifically, our earth is one day off, and he tracked it all the way back, secular scientists, to this time. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. I want to talk this morning from the subject, helping your haters. Helping your haters. She's had a rough day. It's the worst day that any parent could imagine or endure. She was at an amusement park with her only child, her son. Had to make an urgent phone call, so she steps away from him. Makes the phone call. When she comes back, she can't find him. After a frantic few minutes of searching, she finally glances to the parking lot and she spots him. He's been accosted by two individuals and is being shoved into a car. She doesn't stop and call 911. Her maternal instincts take over. She hops in the car and begins what would amount to a several hundred mile car chase. Along the way, she gets into a car accident, almost dies, miraculously pulls through and then picks up the trail again. Along the way, she ends up playing a role in in killing the two abductors. And against all odds, at great peril to her own life, she is finally reunited with her son. Now, anybody would, would intuitively know that any mother loves their child, but at the end of this movie, Kidnapped, star, starring Halle Berry, yeah, I was on a flight, I was bored. At the end of this movie, you, you know, you know beyond the shadow of a, of a doubt that, that she really loves her child. And the way you know that is because of the calamity she endured. It's a truism to life that, that suffering and hard times and duress kind of serves as an MRI of sorts to really reveal what's going under the hood of our hearts. If you really want to know what is going at the epicenter of your heart, go through difficulty. Prosperity won't won't weed it out. Prosperity is a horrible teacher. If you really want to know what's in your heart, go through the difficulties of life. We see this in Genesis chapter 22 when God shows up to Abram one day and he says, Abram, remember that child I promised you and years and years and years your wife battled infertility and miraculously I opened up the womb and I said that this child was the child of promise. Yeah, yeah, Abraham's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, God. Well, I want you to kill it. Why? Because the writer of Genesis says this was a test to really see what was in his heart. If you really want to know 
what is in your heart go through difficulties. That's why I need you to get this. Suffering has never wrecked anyone's faith. It has only revealed their faith. If you aren't following God in hard times, then the truth of the matter is you were never really following him in good times. You were following him for the benefits package. But when God took back the benefits package, now you realize what you thought was faith was really a house of cards. Suffering has never, ever wrecked anyone's faith. It has only revealed it. Every summer, I compile a list of books for my kids to read, and this is the delight of their summer. Of course, you know I'm just kidding. But one of the books I, I have my kids read is the classic book, The Sunflower. It's a true tale written by a Jew by the name of Simon Weisenthal in which he tells of the time serving in a Nazi concentration camp, going through difficulty when frantically the door to the infirmary opens up and there is a nurse who, who just randomly grabs the first Jew she could see. It happens to be Simon. She ushers him up the stairs. There on his deathbed is a Nazi soldier moments away from dying and And he just exhales to Simon, I need you to forgive me on behalf of all Jews. Simon is stunned. This man says, I've committed atrocities in my life. And he begins to go into horrific detail. One of the atrocities, he says, is I, along with my Nazi comrades, um, set fire to an apartment that was inhabited by Jews. And and when the Jews began to leave the apartment building that was on fire, me and my Nazi comrades sat there with machine guns, picking them off, killing them life by life by life. And he says, I need you to forgive me. It is the most astounding book on forgiveness I've read. The last two-thirds of the book is a roundtable discussion of sorts in which these various faith leaders, pastors, debate whether or not Simon should forgive him. One individual, Herbert Marcuse, says these words, It always seemed to me inhuman and a travesty of justice if the executioner asked the victim to forgive. One cannot and should not go around happily killing and torturing and then, when the moment has come, simply ask and receive forgiveness. In my view, this perpetuates the crime. Obviously, we know that he is not a very forgiving person. How do we know that? Because when faced with duress, it came out. The only way you know if you're a merciful person is to be wronged. The only way you know if you're a forgiving person, it is to be betrayed. The only way you know you are a gracious person is to have your enemies do the unthinkable to you. This morning, I want to talk about grace. In our story, we meet Gibeon again. 
The last time we were in Joshua, we were in Joshua chapter 9, and here is Gibeon having deceived and wronged and stabbed Israel in her collective backs by making them think they had come from a long way. They had pulled off this masterful act of deception. They put on their old Birkenstocks. They had crumbly pieces of bread, all in a masterful act of deception to convince them they don't live close when in reality they were about a day's journey away. Now in our story, the very ones who had wronged Israel cries out for help. And Israel does the unthinkable. They come to their rescue. They help their haters. I got to ask you today, are you a gracious person? Are you a gracious person? How do you handle that father who walked out on you when you were a young boy? And has made it very clear he wants nothing to do with your life. How do you react to that pastor who split the church? And took your friends away. What would you feel if you randomly ran into him at the local Costco? Am I getting a little too close to home? I'm talking about a friend of mine, by the way. How do you handle that ex-spouse who betrayed you, walked out on you, has refused to make child support payments? How do you handle that mother-in-law who's fitting to park her behind at your table for Thanksgiving? Who has just made it clear over the course of your years that she would never have picked you for her daughter or for her son. And who always has an unsolicited suggestion for how you could be doing it better. Am I getting too close to someone's house today? How do you handle that ethnically other who called you that racially insensitive term? The true test of your Christianity is not how you treat people who are nice to you. It's how do you handle people that so hate you that if you were on fire and they had a cup of water, they drink it slowly. How do you handle your haters? I want to teach you three things right from our text about grace. We're going to learn that grace is hard. We're going to learn that grace is hereditary. We're going to learn that grace is historical. First, grace is hard. Here's Gibeon. They have wronged Israel. They have pulled off a masterful deception. They have weaseled their way into a treaty with Israel. As our text opens up, there's a king who's upset about Gibeon doing this. So what this king does is he puts a large coalition together 
And he comes against, not Israel, but against Gibeon. He wants to completely wipe them out. Gibeon hears word of it and listen to how Gibeon responds when when they say these words in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Now, if you read this in the original language of Hebrew, you would notice that all the verbs are what's called um, in the imperative mood, which is the mood of desperation. So, so in its emotional context, here's how verse six reads. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, don't relax your hand. Come up to us quickly. Help us. Now, can we just have a truthful moment? If I was Joshua, I'm going to say, look at God. Ain't God good. I mean, here are our haters. They're getting their just due. They weaseled their way. I ain't going to do nothing. I'm going to let God handle this. Won't he do it? Won't he will? One verse later, God says, yeah, I know they wronged you. help them. Here's what I want you to understand about grace. Grace is never passive. It's active. Mercy tends to be more passive. Mercy, biblically defined, mercy is not giving someone something they deserve. It's one of my kids doing something they shouldn't have done and, and they deserve maybe some consequences. Mercy is me not giving them the consequence. That's mercy. That's not grace. Mercy is the withholding of what they should have gotten. Grace is the giving of what they never deserved. So mercy would be me going, yeah, you deserve maybe to have your phone taken away, uh, but um, I'm not going to do that. That's mercy. And, And grace is, let's go get some ice cream. Mercy is passive. Grace is active. Grace is not, it is not, it is not the refusal to retaliate. That's mercy. Grace is actually going out of your way to show acts of tangible kindness to people who don't deserve it. Mercy is not me just withholding my tongue from that snarky comment to that in-law. It is actually me proactively pursuing them and say, how can I be a vessel of blessing on them? Are you a gracious person? I want to be careful with this illustration. I'll give a disclaimer after I, I give it, but I, I, I think this gets at the core of it. Ravi Zacharias, this prolific author, tells an incredible story in one of his books of a husband and wife over in India who had gotten into this heated argument and emotions are high and escalating. And, and, and all of a sudden, in, in, a, in, in a heat of rage, the husband leaves and moments later comes back and he dumps acid on his wife's face. She's deformed for life. And as if that wasn't enough, he then leaves her for another woman. Now, some decades later, 
that marriage to the second wife has unraveled. He's older. He's gotten terminally ill. He is, he's sick, destitute, has no money, needs someone to look after him. And in desperation, he reaches out to his first wife. Yes, the one he dumped acid on and says, I have nothing. Will you come and care for me and help me convalesce? And without thinking, she does to the shock of her two daughters. Her two daughters in utter shock says, Mom, how can you do this? How can you care for this person? I remind you, look at your face. Look at what he did to you. How can you do this? And the mom responded by saying, because I'm Christian. Grace, by the way, always has a crazy factor to it. If it doesn't defy comprehension, it's not grace. I want to be careful, women. You know how I feel about men who abuse their wives. We're going to start a ministry here with about a group of six foot nine, 320 pound men who have been specially tasked by me to go over any male who abuses his wife or any girl's house to lay hands on them and not for prayer. We don't play that here. We don't play that. So don't hear this illustration as it being okay for you to go back to your abuser. Yes, use wisdom. There are times in which you probably need to move out the house and set up boundary and get the help for the anger management issues. I understand all that. Let's walk in wisdom. But the point of the story is going the extra mile with people who have wronged you and don't deserve it. An ungracious Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. Right now, I want you to think of that person or those people who have wronged you. Get them in your mind right now. What if God were to say to you right now, I want you to call them. And bless them. How would you feel? Could you do it? I don't know. That just feels really hard. I haven't talked to them in years. And you, you don't quite understand what they did. And grace is hard. In fact, if you just look at this story, God says to the nation of Israel and to Joshua, yes, I want you to go out there to help them go to the battlefield. But who are they fighting? They are fighting a coalition of armies that is much larger than them, which means they don't have the resources to help. They can't do this in their own strength. It is not just hard. It is impossibly hard. God understands this. That's why he would say to Joshua and his people in verse 8, will you look at it with me? 
And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. Now, now, now this week, I was just blown away by this phrase because if you've been tracking through Joshua, this is, this is the number one most repeated phrase God ever gives to Joshua. Do not fear them or do not be afraid. So I took out my little Bible study tools and I ran a search Who in the Bible did God say these words to? Do not fear them or do not be afraid. God says to Israel, do not be afraid. God says to Moses when he called him to be the one to lead his people into freedom, do not be afraid. Numerous times to Joshua, God says to him, do not be afraid. To Gideon, when God was calling him to take on mighty Midian with only 300 individuals, God says, do not be afraid. To lonely Elijah, who spoke truth to power, God said, do not be afraid. To Hezekiah, the king, he says, do not be afraid. To Jehoshaphat, when he was facing this large coalition of armies that were threatening Judah's extinction, he says, do not be afraid. To Isaiah, the prophet, he says, do not be afraid. To Mary, when he said to the angel, you are going to be the one to birth the Messiah, do not be afraid. To her betrothed husband, Joseph, who was wondering what to do with all this, God says, do not be afraid. Numerous times, Jesus says to his disciples, do not be afraid. To Paul, God says, do not be afraid. To wives through Peter, God says, do not be afraid. To the church in the book of Revelation, God says, do not be afraid. Now watch this. He only says, do not be afraid to people who are facing impossible challenges and contemplating risk. He never says, do not be afraid to people who are playing it safe. context, these words, do not be afraid, apply to an individual who is being asked to show grace to those who have wronged them, and maybe there is fear of rejection, fear of defeat. God says, when you trust me to do the impossible, I am with you. Do not be afraid. Secondly, grace is not just hard. Grace is hereditary. Verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Now, this is, this is amazing. Listen. Some people think grace only showed up with Jesus in the New Testament. Not true. 
Grace is a beautiful theme woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. We see grace even in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, Israel sinned. They've taken the devoted things. They violated what God said. They rush out into the battlefield against Ai. They get defeated. 36 people died. God exposes their sin. Then in chapter 8, in an astounding act of grace, God says, I'm going to give you a do-over, a rematch. And God graciously allows them to go back into battle with Ai in which they win. One chapter later, they sin by ignoring God and not even inviting God in. And they make a treaty with the very nation God says you should have destroyed. Now, one chapter later in Joshua chapter 10, God, in an astounding act of grace, gives them a do-over and says, I'm with you. Right after them ignoring God, one chapter later, God says, I am with you. I'm giving you a do-over. Anyone glad for the gracious do-overs of God in their life? See, this encourages me because if you just chart out Israel and how God relates to them in the book of Joshua, it mirrors our own lives. There's sin and then there's grace. There's sin and grace and sin and grace and sin and grace. It is worth repeating. God has more mercy than we have mess. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Now watch this. God is saying, you can show grace to Gibeon because you have received grace from me. In other words, you cannot truly give what you have never received. The very fabric of our faith as children of God has wired within the DNA of it grace. We've been saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Praise God. I don't have to work my way into God's good graces. I don't have to knock on so many doors first. I don't have to pray so many times first, facing in a, in a certain direction at a certain time first. I am accepted in the beloved. In fact, in Romans 2, 4, it is God's kindness here, grace, that leads to our repentance. I am saved and sustained and kept by grace. Now, having received this, God does not want us to be cul-de-sacs of his grace. Where I just revel in the fact that I've received it, I've received it. I've, praise God. I love singing about receiving grace. I love. God says, now I want you to be boulevards of that grace. I want grace not to get stuck in you, but I want it to pass through you. And the only way grace passes through you to others is in the context of others who have wronged you. Every time we are wronged, we are given an incredible opportunity to look like Jesus. One of my favorite stories, true story, 1954 Cotton Bowl, Rice University against the University of Alabama, tight game coming down towards the end of the game. It's seven to six. When Rice University's uh, running back, Dickie Nagel, takes the ball, shoots up the sideline. He is going to coast in for a touchdown. They are going to get the victory. It just seems assured when an Alabama player sitting on the bench, not even on the field, named Tommy Lewis, does the unthinkable. He sees Dickie Nagel heading for the end zone, and he gets up off the bench illegally and tackles him before he gets in the end zone. 
after the game, the reporters are astounded. They've never seen this before. And they shove microphones in his face, astounded. Tommy, why did you do this? I love his response. He shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know. I guess I got too much Bama in me. Likewise, friends, when the world is astounded by our act of grace to people who don't deserve it, who have wronged us, and they ask us, how could you do that? May we likewise shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. I guess I have too much Jesus in me. Grace is hard. You're a child of God who has received grace. Grace is hereditary. But thirdly and finally, grace is historical. Here's Israel. They trust God. They go out on the battlefield, outnumbered, outmatched. And God, unbeknownst to Israel, goes before them. The text says he does two things. He throws these nations into a panic. Israel is defeating them. They're beating them. They're beating them real good. And then I'm like, God, you're doing a little bit too much now because as these nations, they're running away. They they are retreating to add insult to injury. As they're running away, God hurls huge hailstones at them killing more of them with the hailstones than what Israel did with the sword. Now, part of me goes, God, this is a little extra. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, fights that we had in high school. Two people get in a fight, and one person's getting whipped pretty bad, so much so that they slip and fall, and then some random person comes out the crowd and just kind of gets a kick in. That seems to be what God is doing here. But I think there's something to this. As Israel trusts God to show grace, God is working on the other side, throwing huge hailstones in the hearts of their enemies. Listen to me. You may be going, it is impossible for me to show grace to that estranged mother, that estranged father, that person who's wronged me. I don't know how I'm going to do it. But if you would just take a step of faith, you never know what God is doing on the other side in the heart of that person who's wronged you. And in the midst of it all, Joshua prays a crazy prayer. Hey, God, we're in the thick of this battle, and sun's about to set. Can, can you, God, make the sun stand still? This prayer reminds me of another one. We alluded to it earlier in service, one that Jesus says in Matthew seventeen twenty. He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing, nothing, nothing will be impossible to you. It's the New Testament equivalent of this picture that we see. Joshua asked God to do the impossible and what does God do? He does the impossible. In context, his prayer has to do with extending the day so that he can graciously fight for Gibeon. Are you still asking God to do the impossible or have you ever in helping you to show grace to someone who's wronged you? Do you even pray about that? Some of us, we're going to be, we're going to be honest. We ain't even praying about it. I've just, I've just even stopped praying. It's not even on my prayer list. They wronged me. It happened. Praise God for caller ID. See the, see the number on my phone. In fact, I kind of got caught out there one time because I even deleted their name 
out of my phone, and then they called, and some random number, and I picked it up by accident. Do you even pray about that ex who wronged you? That business partner who betrayed you? Are you asking God for the impossible? Let's go home with two thoughts. If you read commentators chiming in on verses 12 through 14, it's, it's kind of depressing and hilarious all at the same time. Some of the, the excuses they give. One commentator says that, well, the sun didn't really stand still. It was a solar eclipse. Another commentator said um, it, it was hot and God just kind of lessened the heat. And I'm going, you got a PhD in theology, really? How about we just take God at his word? No matter how you cut it, here's the conclusion. The Bible says there was never a day like it before, and there was never a day like it since. Here's the point. Anytime you show grace to a person who doesn't deserve it, that becomes a historical day in your journey with Jesus. You'll never forget that. I remember one time I was called the N-word by a Bible college classmate. And God asked me to show grace to him. I was like, talk to the hand, talk to the hand, not trying to hear you right now. God just kept speaking and speaking and speaking. And I showed grace to this individual, asked them to actually forgive me for the bitter heart that I had towards them. That happened about a quarter century ago, and I will always remember that, the astounded look on his face. Because when you do that, you heap what the Bible says, hot coals on their heads. The world has a category for vengeance. They don't have a category for grace. When you show grace, it becomes a historical mile marker in your journey with Jesus, never to be forgotten. friend of mine, his, his parents got divorced when he was real young. His biological mom left. His dad got custody of him. Dad remarried. Stepmom now comes into his life. Friend tells me that the stepmom was never really mean to me, but I just knew as a little boy from the day she entered into my life that she never was going to embrace or accept me. I just never felt that maternal love from her. I was estranged from my biological mom, and I was kind of living in the same house as my stepmom, but my stepmom just made it clear she wasn't really feeling me. Years go by, I leave the house. Later on in my 20s, I get saved. Jesus now moves into my life. I love the way he talks about it. He's like, he's like, he's, he's, there's a honeymoon period at first. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And then a couple years into my journey with Jesus, Jesus just started knocking on the door of my life. And he started pointing out some resentment that was festering in my soul towards my stepmom who never accepted me. And Jesus began to say to me, we, we need to talk about that. And Jesus made it clear He didn't want me to just call her. He actually wanted me to get on a plane and fly thousands of miles and to sit with her and to show grace to her by letting her know I forgive her. He said, man, I was real nervous because she didn't ask for this. She didn't know I was feeling this. 
He says, when I got on a plane, flew thousands of miles, he says, I'm shaking, get there, sit down. We, we, we exchanged pleasantries and then finally just launched into it and just said, hey, look, I'm not here to guilt you. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I can only imagine what you were going through. You fall in love with this man. This man's got some kids, and you kind of inherit them. But I just want you to know how I felt. I just never felt embraced by you. But, but I want you to know I forgive you. He, he says, the moment I did that, it felt like my soul lost 100 pounds. Now you know I was carrying. So I get on a plane and go back. A couple years later, she calls me. She's diagnosed with stage four cancer. She's terminal. And while she has her own biological kids, she actually asked if I would be so kind as to come visit her and to care for her. She says, I dropped everything. Took a leave from work, flew out there, cared for her. And a couple weeks in, she just says, where did the strength come from to forgive me? He says, because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. He's shown me grace. And right there on her deathbed, she accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. He said, my historical day of letting Jesus come into my life and receiving forgiveness led me to forgive her, which was a historical day, which led to her historical day of saying yes to Jesus Christ. What broke through wasn't vengeance. It wasn't you wronged me, so let me just emotionally moonwalk and cut you off and never speak to you again. Nobody's testimony has ever been, I wronged this person, they never spoke to me again, so I said yes to Jesus. Won the day. It was grace. Now, why should I show grace? Because don't you understand we were all Gibeon? Our sin, our deception, our lies, our sin had backed us into a corner we could not get out of. And we hollered help, and God sent his divine Joshua, Jesus Christ, who stood in our place and for our sins on a hill called Calvary and was resurrected the third day according to the scripture. And that day, the day of the empty tomb, is a greater day than the day in Joshua 10 where God made the sun stand still. It is the epitome of hypocrisy, Brian, to receive the grace of God and not extend it to others. So I want to go home on this. One of my concerns, and I said I wasn't going to talk about it for the first couple years here, but I feel a release from God to talk about it right now. I wasn't here when all the drama went down and all the hurtful stuff was said and things happened. And if you're new with us, just imagine this room was filled up four times on the weekend. Just just imagine that. Then drama went down. And a split happened. It's happened. And there, there, there's some hurt here. and We've moved past it. Here's what I want you to understand. 
God is not going to bless abundant life to the degree in which I know he's going to bless us. And the new season he's calling us in, as long as there are people here still holding on to unforgiveness and resentment. That's just not how God works. So for the sake of abundant life's own health, we need you to let it go. We need you to be freed from it. So if you're here today, and you're going, Pastor, there's some folk in my life I just need to show grace to, and uh, I haven't done it. And it feels like what Israel was called to do, to go out into a battlefield against a coalition of five armies, it feels that impossible for me. And I just want prayer for strength to forgive those and to show grace to those who've harmed me. Would you meet me here at the altar? I just need strength. Would you just pray for me that I would show grace to someone who's wronged me? And let me just say this as they're coming. This is a sensitive moment. We understand emergencies. But I would just ask that nobody would head for the exits while God is, in, is doing work right now and people are responding to his word. If you're here right now and you're going, there's someone in my life who's, who's just wronged me. And as this word was going forth, the spirit of God was tapping on my shoulder saying, I need you to trust me with that. And I just need prayer because it seems impossible. It seems like it's a mountain that I can't get through on my own. And I need the same God who showed up behind the scenes with Israel in Joshua chapter 10. I need that God to show up behind the scenes with me. Would you just come here and meet me at the altar? I've received grace. God, I need your strength to help me give grace to others. We're not here to talk about the wrong and I know it's real, and I know it hurts. And some of you, it's a fresh wound right now. Others of you, it's, it's a little bit of a callus. You just, you, you just haven't touched it in years. But God is saying, my word has gone forth in this place, and it's time you live into the very thing I've given to you, and that is grace. There's a Gibeon in your life. They've wronged you. They've deceived you. They've betrayed you. They've hurt you. They've wounded you. And it's real. It's real. God says, I don't want you to go another mile in your journey with me carrying the anger and the hurt and the bitterness you've got with Gibeon. I want a release in your spirit. I want a lightness in your life. 